the purpose, the purpose of this morning is if you look around and listen to the news and hear what's going on, it's easy to think, what's happening to the church? What's happening to Christianity? Is God sort of checking out? Well, no. We want to tell you about some of the things we could talk about all over the world, but specifically this morning, we're going to be talking about Africa. A couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity of having lunch with Jeremy Johnson and Larry Warren. And it was the most exciting lunch I've had in a long time, or maybe ever, because they got to start telling stories, really interesting stories, about what God is doing today in Africa, where there's people that love him and where they have a uh, hunger for the word of God. It's easy to have misconceptions about Africa. Lois and I went there about 40 years ago as missionaries, and in order to, when we were getting ready, they gave me a book, the mission board gave me a book. It's called In Which Bound Africa? And it was all about the people that we were going to, the Kaandi in Zambia, and it was written in 1923, and it had pictures of these guys in loincloth spearing uh, antelope, and giving me that book. It was really interesting, but it's sort of like saying, oh, you're moving to Kansas? Here, let me give you a little house on the prairie. I'll tell you all what Kansas is like. <laughs> Not really. Then we got to Africa, got to Zambia, and in Zambia they have one radio station um, run by the government. And so, among other things, every week they had 15 minutes for the Baptists, 15 minutes for the Presbyterians, 15 minutes for the Evangelical Church of Africa, uh, of Zambia. And there's a lot of Indians in Zambia, as there is throughout Africa. There's many Indians, most of them are merchants. And so a, lot of in, a number of Indians went to the government of, Af of Zambia and said, we're Hindus and we'd like 15 minutes of religious broadcasting on Radio Zambia too. And the government said, no, we are a Christian country and we don't have to let you have your 15 minutes on our radio program. You'd never get that here. Um, and so a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity of trying to decide what the Lord wanted me to do next. And I was given the opportunity of working on the Africa Study Bible. And I thought, you know, this would probably the thing that would re I, could, I could do that would most impact the Church of Jesus Christ. In 1910, when that book was written that I mentioned, only 1%, 1.5% of the world's Christians were in Sub-Sahara Africa. By 2050, 40% of the world's Christians will be in Sub-Sahara Africa. And they don't all have the kind of resources that we have here, which is why I wanted to work on the Africa Study Bible. Now, why do we need that? Well, let me tell you a story. A preacher got up and said, prayer is not like a vending machine. Prayer is not where, like where you can put in a coin, pull a, th a thing, and whatever you ask for will come out. Sounds like a great illustration. And it's true, except that this preacher was in rural Sierra Leone, and neither he nor anyone in his congregation had an idea what a vending machine was. He got that from reading a book published by Zondervan in the United States. So if you're going to write a, a study Bible and explain what the scripture says, 
What would you, how would you do it in Africa? I'll tell you another story. Uh, when there's a drought in some parts of Africa, the monkeys know where the water is, but they don't know, they don't want you to know. So what you do is you capture a monkey and you feed him salt until he gets so thirsty that you let him go and he runs for the water and doesn't care whether you're following him or not. What a great way of explaining what Jesus said, that you are the salt of the earth. And so your Christianity should be so exciting and so letting people see your, how God's working in you that they have a thirst for the, for the living water that Jesus gives. So that's what we did in the Africa Study Bible. We explained the scriptures with stories of monkeys instead of stories of vending machines. So this morning what we're going to do is first Larry Warren is going to tell us some really exciting stories of, he, he, he knows more about Africa than anybody I know. He's lived in Kenya and South Africa. Anywhere else? Yeah, and Brentwood. Around. <laughs> <laughs> and Brentwood. And Brentwood. Yeah. yeah. Um, and has had some really exciting things, especially most recently in Madagascar. But Larry? Thank you. Uh, I actually met Larry uh, probably 40 years ago uh, when he had just come back from uh, uh, living in, uh, in Zambia. And that's about the time I started going, uh, going back and forth. So let me get this a little closer. Is that better? Good. And uh, <clears throat> so pretty much that's what I've been doing for the last 40 years is going back and forth to Africa. Uh, I came to Christ in 1979. Uh, I was in middle school. No, I wasn't. I was. Uh, I'd already been ten years in business, and uh, uh, went forward at the Billy Graham Crusade at the uh, Vanderbilt Stadium in 1979. And I, I believed that I was a Christian, uh, and what that meant to me was, you know, I've, I've got my fire insurance. I'm going to go to heaven. I'm not going to hell. And uncharacteristic of, of Billy Graham's evangelistic sermons, which this was, but what I heard, he went through passages in the New Testament where it talks about Jesus as Savior and Lord. Savior and Lord. Who's the Lord of your life? Who's the ruler of your life? And that is so clear to me, well, I am. I would really considered the possibility that to be a Christian, it means it's going to change the way I live, that I'm going to be following someone rather than being the leader I thought I was supposed to be. Uh, I started a ministry a few years ago called uh, Leadership International, and when I first met with the board, I said I want to call it Fellowship International. And they said, that's not even a word. <laughs> I said, what? So then I go down the list of all these words we use now that weren't words 20 years ago. I said, maybe that'll be catchy, you know, good marketing. And they decided it would not be. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but, but anyway, shortly after uh, I came to Christ, my wife and I started studying, what does the Bible say about the poor? Uh, you know, there's about a thousand verses in the Bible about the poor, the spiritually poor, the materially poor. And if you start reading those, and I, I didn't read all of them, but I, I got stuck on Matthew 25 where Jesus said when he comes back, and he's coming back, 
he's going to separate those in a right relationship with him from those who aren't, and he's going to identify them by who they're hanging around with. The hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the strangers, the sick, and those in prison. And I realized here I was in a good church. We were in the same church. Uh, hearing the gospel, singing in the choir, even worked some with the youth, but I was not in an intentional ministry with anybody in any of those six groups. And on TV, it seemed like every other night back in the 80s, they, talk, they showed pictures of the people in Ethiopia that were starving. Any of you remember that? You know, a million people starved to death in Ethiopia between 1984 and 1986. And that's what the Lord used to get my wife and I involved in, in ministry. I, I didn't, you know, want to be a missionary, but I wanted to help. And so I was, I was in business, so, uh, you know, I'll send him a check. But I, by then I knew a little bit about stewardship, and so I wanted to send it, my money to an organization that was actually sharing the gospel as they shared food and got involved with Samaritan's Purse and went over there with Franklin Graham. And, um, and that was the beginning of a... A whole different lifestyle uh, and a real culture shock. Uh, after a few years, my family moved to Nairobi, Kenya, to coordinate the relief and development work uh, in in East Af Africa with Franklin. But long story short, uh, I want to focus on some of what the Lord is doing in Africa. You know, there's been attention lately of the revival in the United States. And I'm so grateful for it. But I want you to know, I've been going to Africa really for 40 years, and in my opinion, they have a, I don't know how long their revival is, but it's at least 40 years. E Ethiopia, one of the poorest places in the world, they're back in the news now because there's a war in a place called Tigray. There are two million refugees of that war. You never see it on the news. In fact, uh, twice as many people were, have been killed in Tigray in the last 18 months as have been killed in Ukraine. Africa is an underserved place, but not by the Holy Spirit. There's a tremendous movement, uh, not only in Africa, but I mean, in Ethiopia. The way the missionaries look at Africa is, you know, the equator goes right through it. And that's kind of the spiritual battle line. From the equator south, most people would say, I'm a Christian. In fact, you need to get to know some Africans because Africa is the population center of our faith. There are more Christians between the equator and Cape Town than Europe and the United States combined. You've got to get ready for a lot of diversity in heaven, folks. <laughs> Do you know what language is spoken by more Christians than any other language in the world? It's Spanish. There are almost as many Christians in South America. There's a tremendous revival going on there. The reason that is the most used language is because there's 900 different languages in Africa. So there are more Christians, but they don't speak the same language. So as I got involved with the um, relief and development, uh, we worked primarily through local churches. And I was so shocked when I would go to the churches in Africa. I found out that 90% of the pastors were bivocational. The churches were so small and so poor, the church couldn't support them financially, so they had to do some kind of tent making. And the thing that broke my heart was I found 
almost as high a percentage of them had never had any formal training. Can you imagine what it would be like if, uh, how many of you go to a church where you, you think your pastor has probably been to seminary? All right. 90% of the pastors in Africa have never had any formal training. And so what we've tried to do uh, over our career is follow this revival of the Holy Spirit because the Great Commission says to go and make disciples, not so much make converts. That's, that's the Holy Spirit's job. And one of the ways we make disciples is teaching and giving them tools. It says in 1 Timothy 3, he who desires to be an overseer, that's a deacon or an elder or a pastor, has set his heart on a noble task. And then it gives the qualifications of deacons and elders. And one of them is they must be able to teach. And how can they teach if they haven't been taught? So for the last 30 years, that's been the focus of our ministry. I've worked with three different ministries uh, doing the same thing. And uh, we came up with a curriculum, 10 courses. What does a man need to know to shepherd a local flock? And by God's grace, over the last 30 years, we've had over 100,000 men graduate from our program. And that's, this is not a weekend seminar. These men sign up for four hours a week for two years. That's 400 classroom hours with a teacher that has been to Bible college. We're not a missionary sending organization. I was a missionary. I lived in Africa for 12 years. But whether it's Africa or Southeast Asia, Today is the day of the national indigenous missionary. People there know the word. There's a lot of local spiritual intelligence. But what they need are tools and training. And so along with our curriculum for many years, uh, I, I probably bought 50,000 NIV study Bibles because I found that was one of the most effective tools, even more effective than our training material. How many of you have a study Bible? Is it helpful? Of all these thousands of pastors that have gone through our training, I bet not 5% of them had ever had a study Bible. And I saw that when we gave them a study Bible, it changed their preaching with one class, because I would go to the different churches. And when they get a study Bible, uh, we got one over here. Let me just hold one for a second. You know, you know what's in them. It's got, a, it's got an index to the subjects. It's got at the bottom of every page, it's got the explanation of the difficult passages. It has cross-references. It has illustrations, things they've never seen before. And, and just because of that one tool, you'll see men learning to rightly handle God's word. Revival comes from people rightly handling God's word. So then a few years ago, <clears throat> Larry's the one who introduced me to the uh, Africa Study Bible. He knew uh, we used study Bibles in our training. He, he said, we're putting this together. He said, do you know anybody that maybe ought to be a contributor? You know, this is the first study Bible where all the study notes are written by African scholars. And just like he said, it, it, it may talk about monkeys rather than vending machines. It, it basically gives culturally relevant explanations of the difficult passages of Scripture. Let me read a, a couple of excerpts, well, not just, just a couple of comments from the pastors that we train. So we started buying them. We bought 5,000 Africa Study Bibles. 
to give to our, our pastors and church leaders. Here's a pastor from Zimbabwe. He says, I'm really grateful to Leadership International for accessing the Africa Study Bibles on our behalf. I've always wished to have a Bible that has footnotes for me to get a clear understanding of what the scripture can convey to my life. The simple English that has been used also helps us understand the explanations or illustrations, and it makes it very easy to put the word of God into action and to be able to share it with confidence to other people. The Africa Study Bible has helped me so much in preparing my sermons and Bible studies. The best thing that I love about these Bibles is they refer to life in a practical way. They also help people hold on to their good cultural standards, which are biblically based. The examples clarify and leave one having a wider and more practical understanding of not only what the Bible says, but what it means. He says, we distribute Bibles in Zimbabwe, South Africa, Eswatini, and in Angola. And as usually, he says, many more are needed. Uh, we also need Bibles in Mozambique and for Zambia. Uh, we look forward to opening two more classes soon. Now, we have a, a national director in each of the 25 countries where we work. Uh, we use the Africa Study Bible in Africa. We use uh, study Bibles given to us by uh, Ligonier Ministries for uh, uh, places outside of Africa and by Voice of the Martyrs. See, today is also a day of cooperation among mission organizations. And it's so exciting, actually, to see the cooperation and that, how that facilitates the resources being deployed in a way that really builds the church. Could you tell us about Madagascar? Yeah. I'll read one, I'll read one last quote, and then that's okay. my other assignment. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to read this one from Sam. Okay. He, he went to Ghana and met Sam Opong, our, our regional director, and he says, the African Study Bibles are being used in Ghana. They're given to our students in various classes. The students like the Bible because most of the notes are more contextualized with African proverbs and stories. Some of the writers are known, well-known African leaders, which helps the students really own the Bible as something for them. We're grateful for the donors, and we're looking for more for our students. That's the way every comment I get, uh, letter I get ends. Now, to jump to Madagascar, uh, not only is there a hunger for more tools of training, but there's still a basic hunger for God's word. And even though Africa is the capital population center of our, of our faith, there are many people that don't even have access to scripture. About five years ago, I went to Madagascar, and I met with the head of the largest evangelical denomination. It's a Protestant group, if you can believe that. Uh, they would trace their history back to Scottish missionaries. And I met with Pastor Njato, the head of their denomination, and I went to his local church in the capital city, and he has 20,000 members. And they started a school of mission because their research showed there were more than 200 villages in Madagascar where there was no church or any Christian witness. So they, uh, 100 people, 106 people signed up to go through our 10-course our training with the purpose of going out to 
reach the unreached in Madagascar. And when they did, they, uh, uh, we got some reports back. They said, we found that most of the people, the Bible's not even translated into their language. And they named the languages, which I'd never heard of. And they said, would, would we help fund the translation of the Bible in these languages? Well, I, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I was kind of cynical. People always asking the missionaries for money to fund this and fund that. So I called my friend, Dr. Bill Gardner at Wycliffe uh, Bible Translators. We went to grad school together. I said, hey, have you ever heard of the uh, Shemiti language? He said, oh, yeah, it's in uh, Madagascar. 1.5 million people speak that language. And I said, so I guess you've got the Bible translated into that language. He said, no. I said, what about the Bastilio language? Have you heard of that? He said, of course. That's the largest unreached people group in Madagascar. Four million people speak Bastilio. I said, so you have that translated, right? He said, no. I said, what are you guys doing over there? <laughs> he said, well, people like you would raise money for Bible translation instead of feeding the poor and training church leaders. You know, maybe we'd get this job done. Uh, so long story short, we decided to get involved in, in helping. And let me just read two quotes and tell a story. And then I'll close in prayer and uh, pass the offering. No. Uh, <clears throat> Here's what Pastor Njato said. Ten years ago, we decided we need to get involved in Bible translation for all these people who don't have the Bible in their language. From then on, we would begin our outreach in these areas by translating at least the Gospel of John into their language. And during the 21 days preceding the outreach, we let the people hear the Gospel in their own language through a local radio broadcast, reading one chapter of the Book of John each day. Once we finished broadcasting the Gospel of John, we carried out door-to-door -door evangelism and street evangelism over the span of one week, and at the end of that week, we held a public evangelism service. Everywhere we went, more than 10,000 people came and attended the public evangelism event. Can you believe that? We asked the people why they came to this event, and the majority of them said something like, we are here because we heard the Gospel of John translated into our language. Now, they said, we know that salvation is for us because Jesus speaks our language. God's word is the foundation of revival. We've translated the Shemiti and the Bastilio Bibles. I've got them up here on the table. And uh, it costs about $100,000 to do the translation. The local denomination there does most of the work. My friend Ed Wycliffe got involved as well. And he said this is the fastest translation they've ever seen. They come in as editors uh, on, on, on the difficult passages that are hard for the translators to move through. So now Wycliffe has gotten involved. And so we printed 10,000 of these and shipped them to Madagascar. And we've just done the same thing with the Shemiti language. They're on a boat right now uh, from Korea where they were printed on the way to Madagascar. And here's what happens when you get there. My wife and I went over there last July, and they were, we were there for the, the delivery of the Bastilio Bible. We leave the capital and go to this smaller town in a little plane, land on a dirt strip, and go right up to the airport, which is a small cinder block building. And on the other side, there are hundreds of people. 
and, uh, and on the top of a truck was a, a band playing. And then they had posters blown up this size hanging off the truck and off several cars. And they said, we're so glad you're here. Welcome to the Bible Parade. And they walked us from the airport to their little city center where we met the mayor and she had brought in all the legislators, even the governor of the area was there and the head of the denomination preached an evangelistic sermon and gave them all Bibles. There is a movement of the Holy Spirit around the world, but I just want you to know we're seeing it in Africa. And, and those people, after the parade, the next day we did preach at one church they said it was a church of about 500 people, but there were about 2,000 that showed up that day because they knew the... The pastor said, I've been here for 13 years and I've always had to preach in a language that's not my first language. This is the first sermon I've ever preached in my own language. And they sold more than 1,000 Bibles at church that day. They sold them for $3. It cost us about 10 or $12 to print them and ship them and translate them. And finally, they said, now, the next three days we're taking that money from the Bible sales and we're renting vehicles and we're going out four hours away from the town to some of these unreached villages and I met with one of the teams or all the teams when they came back at the end of the first day they said I said how many Bibles did you take they said 1,000 I said how many do you have left they said 16 I said so you just gave them to everybody you saw they said no we only left a Bible in a home where after hearing the gospel, someone prayed to receive Christ. And second, we found there's somebody in the home that can read. So 984 people came to Christ the first day. Brothers, there's a hunger for God's word, and there's a need for training with tools like the study Bible. We're going to have to be quick. I, Jeremy Johnson... <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. Jeremy Johnson is with Oasis, which is an organization that actually uh, created and publishes the Africa Study Bible. His history has been with Thomas Nelson, with the Gideons, and now with Oasis, and he knows more about printing Bibles around the world than anybody I know. Um, but I would like, you told me a story about Zambia and Awana, and I want you to at least tell that story to us today. Okay, yeah, thanks. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so in Zambia, we work through partnerships uh, in, in all that we do. Uh, and in Zambia, as Larry may have set up in the email, but Awana does after-school Bible clubs with schools, uh, with school children. And they have a curriculum, and they read the Bible and study the Bible. And the government of Zambia did a, a little survey of their people and found that the the men and women that went through an Awana Bible Club became better citizens of the country of Zambia. And so they've now connected with Awana to see how they could get the Awana curriculum along with the Bible into all of the public schools across Zambia, uh, which is amazing. In Zambia and many countries in Africa, Christian religious education is a required subject. Uh, you either choose Christian religious education or in some countries like Nigeria, it's Muslim uh, education uh, or just traditional religions of, of all sorts. And so, uh, so they're working right now. We've, we've supplied them with the first 10,000 Bibles as kind of a little test 
into how does that work and now six other countries are also looking at doing the exact same thing across uh, southern Africa with Awana and uh, with the Oasis Bibles to try to reach the entire entire communities of, of young impressionable school children to build that foundation of not only faith but better leadership and, and growth and, uh, and discipleship uh, for the nations. If you're not familiar, Awana is a, a program that works with kids. It was started in Chicago in the 1940s, I think it was, and has grown amazingly around the world, not just in Africa. So potentially, how many Bibles could you need for, for Zambia? <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot. Hundreds of thousands uh, in a year. How can you supply those? Uh, it's a long process. Uh, so it's about an 18-month process from when we have to order the paper. Um, so the specialty Bible paper uh, in a Bible like this is manufactured in only a few countries around the world and we have to get our advance order in. It takes about 90 days to get that paper to the printer, uh, which we use a, a Christian family run uh, printer in India. It takes them another 90 days or so to manufacture the Bibles and it takes another 60 days or so on the water uh, to get them delivered and then um, all of those need to be sold, so the families buy those, and so then we have to equip with terms the retailers and the wholesalers and the distributors uh, to be able to sell it. And so, yeah, so it's a it's a very long process. So the capital investment for just Zambia alone is probably close to a hundred or a half a million dollars uh, worth of funds that have to go to printers and paper suppliers and shippers even before it gets into the countries to be distributed. So you have to pay for all this ahead of time? Yes, so we have to pay for all this ahead of time. How do you do that? We don't. <laughs> <laughs> through, through prayer, uh, through donors, we have some programs that, uh, that help uh, you know, fund that advanced capital mm -hmm. that we can keep rolling forward. Now, did you tell me that Nigeria is also interested in this? Right, so in, in Kenya, uh, we have this this book, uh, this Bible, approved as a textbook for middle and high school students to use in their Christian religious education classes. Uh, that's about 200,000 a year that would require those. In Nigeria, we're nearly done with the approval process, and in Nigeria alone, they have some 23 million high school students every year that are uh, starting high school that would, you know, probably half of those would need a Christian Bible. When I was in Africa, we went over as missionaries, and I got there and realized the pastors in the church, they know the Bible as well or better than I do. They have walked with the Lord for longer than I have. They're more spiritual, I knew this, than I am. And they certainly know the culture. Why do they need me? Well, there's certain skills, like what Jeremy has, that are needed. But the pastors and the people in Africa have connected with the Holy Spirit, and he's working there. Um, the country of Mozambique, where the mission I was with had a bunch of missionaries in Mozambique. The country of Mozambique kicked them out. And about 10 or 15 years later, we sent some people into Mozambique to see how the church was doing. And you know what? It's doing far better than when we missionaries were there. I'll tell you one more quick story. My wife, they asked her to go out to the compound and teach a class of women. So she went to the compound, and here were, you know, 15 or 25, 30 women. And so she taught the class and then said, well, we'll be back next week. 
who should be teaching this class? And every woman pointed to the oldest woman there and said, she should. So Lois said, okay, next week you can teach. Amen. And God's doing amazing things in Africa. We could have somebody here next week, we won't, we could have somebody here next week telling about South America, as Larry said, or China. God is working overseas. And no matter what you hear about what's going on here, we're only a small part of God's plan. So, sorry for being too late, but let's just have a prayer. Our Lord, we just thank you that we're part of your program, and we thank you that we can participate with you, that we can be hooked up with a Holy Spirit who lives in our life, and we have brothers and sisters all over the world who love you and are part of the church of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.